This episode of Crosscut Talks is supported by Alaska Airlines. Hey, welcome to Crosscut Talks. I'm Mark Bumgarten, the managing editor at Crosscut, and today we're talking about death. You may not like to talk about death, but some scientists do. They actually find it critical to understanding life and how to extend it. Talking about life and death, though, is tricky for anyone, including scientists who, as a group, don't fully understand what life is, what death is, or even what separates the two of them. But where science lacks understanding, there are theories and questions about what is alive and how to keep living things from aging, and intriguing thoughts on the ethics of efforts to prolong life. To consider life and death, then, is to ponder over the greatest of mysteries, which is exactly what we're doing in today's conversation. Andrew Steele has a Ph.D. in physics from Oxford University. After earning his degree, though, he decided that aging is the single most important scientific challenge of our time, which led him to switch fields to computational biology. He's also the author of the book, Ageless, the new science of getting older without getting old. Carl Zimmer is an author of 14 books and writes the New York Times column Matter. One of his many books is Life's Edge, the search for what it means to be alive. Leading the discussion is another scientist fascinated by the separation between life and death. Hallie Benasuti is a doctoral candidate for philosophy at University of Washington, where she's working on a degree in biochemistry. These three may not be able to define life, death, aging, or consciousness, but they certainly have very interesting insights into each. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. If you have any feedback, please send it to talks at crosscut.com. Okay, on with the show. Carl and Andrew, welcome. Hello. Thank you. All right. So as we are discussing life and death today, I think it would be good for us to all get on the same page as we go into this conversation. So I'll get the ball rolling with an easy question. This one's for Carl. Um, how should we define life? Um, you know, there's no good answer to that, I'm afraid. Um, people want to have the answer, um, particularly in this political climate, but there isn't one. The scientists literally have hundreds of definitions and they seem to be coming up with new ones every year. Uh, there are a variety of them, um, but um, you know, each time that people come up with a new definition, others uh, can poke holes in it. Um, and that really tells us that um, fundamentally we really don't understand what life is. Sorry. No, I think that's that's what we're looking for here, right? That's what we're here to discuss today. So. Um... Yeah. In your research for your book, did you find that there was a definition of life that you sort of settled upon for yourself? Well, you see, the one of the problems with definitions of life is that um, we tend to, def we, we kind of know what life is. We know it are in bones. We know that we're alive. And so then we try to say like, okay, what, what definition can I put together that will satisfy me about life? And you know, the fact is that like different people, including different scientists have different things that are important to them. Is it, for example, uh, homeostasis? That's this amazing ability of keeping like a stable environment inside of yourself while your environment around you is changing all the time. So some people will define life around homeostasis. Other people say, well, no, it's reproduction. I mean, that's it. That's what really matters. Um, okay, fine. But like, you know, if you if I take, you know, one rabbit, um, that one rabbit is not going to reproduce. Um, so is it alive? You know, and and uh, and others will use evolution. And then sometimes people will just try to package it all together. So NASA, for example, came up with a de definition of some NASA scientists working with NASA mm -hmm. came up with definition of basically considering life as a a chemically self-sustaining system capable of Darwinian evolution, um, trying to pack it all in there. Um, and they use that as a way, as a guide for looking for life on other planets. And that's 
that's fine, but um, it's there's no like um, theory behind it. It's just sort of a, it was, it kind of emerged out of an all day uh, bull session basically. Yeah, for sure. That was actually, I was just about to ask that. How do we feel like we, what's the thought process for defining life that we might encounter um, in worlds that aren't our own, just because it seems like our definition of life is so limited to what we perceive as life. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, you, you notice how in Star Trek, for example, um, all the aliens look suspiciously like Hollywood extras. Um, <laughs> so does that mean that all aliens on other worlds, if there are, mm -hmm. will will look like humans or, yeah. you know, will they even be multicellular? Um, yeah. You know, uh, if they are um, if they let's say let's say that there's life, uh, microbial life out there. Um, that's kind of, you know, that that's a possibility. Um, will will they use DNA? Because like all life that we know of on Earth uses DNA. So does that mean it has to be DNA? Yeah. There's really no um, strong proof that that's the case. You know, yeah. we could just, it's just that, you know, it's, it's conceivable like that there were different ways that life got started on earth and, you know, the DNA based life won out. Some people think that actually life started as RNA. Um, you can almost like, if you, if you think of the little bubbles of RNA that people get in their Pfizer and Moderna shot, think of that as being the start of life, RNA based life, um, little proto cells. Um, and then DNA based cells kind of evolved out of that. And then they basically like ate all the RNA based life and it's gone. So, you know, what if there's something even better than DNA out there? Yep. Oh, definitely. Yeah. That's what we know because it's what's around us. Right. So, yeah. Um, my next question is for Andrew. Welcome back, Andrew. Um, Hello. How can we age without getting older and maybe even avoid dying? This is something that you focus a lot of your research on and then that your book also. Yeah, it's a great question. I think actually you might think that aging is one of these things that defines life. But what's really fascinating is if you look around the animal kingdom, although we age, you know, all our friends, our families, our relatives, everybody we, we know, humans all age, um, a lot of the animals in our lives age as well. So if you look at your pets, your cats, your dogs, you know, your mice, they all age in actually remarkably similar ways to human beings. They all get frail. They all suffer from very similar spectrum of age-related diseases. We've all seen, you know, a dog with cataracts that can't quite see properly and arthritis in its joints. It really looks as though aging is this universal process. But if we cast the net a bit wider, um, and a really good example of this is a tortoise, which is the reason there's a tortoise on the cover of my book. It's because tortoises display a property called negligible senescence. And this is to say, basically, negligible means not very much, obviously. And senescence is just the scientific term for aging. And um, the, way, the way that we can define this most easily is to look at the risk of death and how that changes with time. So a human has something called a mortality rate doubling time that's about eight years. And that means that well, let's sort of break that down into an example. I'm 36, and what that means is this year, I've got a risk of death of about one in a thousand. And actually, I quite like those odds, because what that means is I've got a less than one in a thousand chance of not making my next birthday. But unfortunately, if you double that every eight years, you know, in eight years' time, it's going to be one over 500. In eight years' time, again, it's going to be one over 250. These aren't too bad until you get to older and older ages. And eventually, if you keep doubling something, it can start getting very big very quickly. And so someone who's in their 90s has roughly a one in six chance of death every year. That's sort of life and death at the roll of a dice. And as a scientist, you look at that and think, wow, what is this you know, seemingly universal process that drags humans into a much increased risk of disease? But if we look for a moment at those negligibly senescent organisms, things like the tortoises, things like fish, uh, even little things called hydra, there, there are a variety of different creatures out there that have this property. They have a risk of death that doesn't change with time. And that means that they effectively don't age. And actually, of course, you know, what we care about isn't really so much the dying itself. It's the suffering. It's the diseases. It's the frailty. It's all those things that come along with it. And although death is a nice, easy thing to measure and a nice, easy thing to get a statistical handle on, actually, we see that these creatures don't experience these things increasing with time either. So it really does seem that there are lots of examples out there of animals, of plants, of all kinds of different things that get older without getting old. Yeah, so it sounds like aging, I mean, the way in which you're sort of talking about it, we're talking about aging as being this one general process, but isn't aging composed of many different things going on within the body? It is, yeah, and I think that was one of the things that's actually been a barrier to studying it for a very long time, because obviously there are, you know, 
thousands and thousands of processes going on inside an individual cell, let alone inside the sort of complex interplay of our entire bodies, all these different cells working together in a variety of complicated ways. And I think scientists for literally decades, you know, from the development of the theory of evolution, people thought that aging was just this impossibly complicated process. It was this, you know, if you imagine, you know, back in the 1800s, we had really, really good theories of physics, thermodynamics, basically saying that everything falls apart with time. That was one of the conclusions of the, the second law of thermodynamics, this sort of law of the universe. So why should animals be any different from steam engines, be any different from rocks and other things that make up the world around us? Well, actually, of course, now we understand that animals have these self-repair mechanisms, and that's one of the ways that we can stave off the aging process. But we've also come to understand that aging isn't one monolithic thing. It's exactly, you know, it's, it's almost as complicated as they would have predicted. But thankfully, we can break it down into a, a collection of processes that are sometimes known as the hallmarks of aging. And these 10 things are the different cellular, molecular, biochemical signatures of growing older. And they're things like damage to our DNA at the most fundamental, you know, tiny levels inside our bodies. Then you can get dysfunction of whole cells. You can get senescent cells. That's that scientific word for old again. And then as these sort of things scale up, you can get to a point where our whole systems in the body, and a really great example of that is the immune system. We've been reminded by coronavirus because it affects older people so much more than younger people. One of the reasons for that is that the whole immune system, our body's toolkit for fighting off external threats, also deteriorates with age. So um, luckily, we have managed to break it down into these distinct categories and come up with ideas for treating all of them. And that's really the sort of the dream of this science. It's, it's fascinating to catalogue all the different changes that happen as a part of aging. It really is, you know, fundamental. It covers every aspect of our biology. But actually, what's really fascinating to me is the ability to intervene and do something about it. So then my follow-up question, which this is sort of the opposite of what I asked Carl at the beginning, and Carl, this is a question for you as well. Um, I know that this is also a tough question to answer as we cannot, we don't really have a great definition for life right now. Do we have a great definition for death? Do you want to go first, Carl? <laughs> sure, sure. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right. So, um, so so just as we think that life is totally obvious and there must be a simple definition for it, we think, well, death, that's got to be obvious too. And I mean, clearly death is a thing. Um, but when you try to draw that line to separate death from life, that's where things get uh, potentially very tricky. And, and, you know, scientists have been struggling to define death as, as well as life for centuries. Um, the, in uh, the early 1800s, um, there was a French physician named Bichat who um, <clears throat> was trying to figure this out. And um, his one of his favorite things to do was to go and to watch executions where people would get guillotine and then study their heads very carefully to try to figure out, well, are they dead yet in there? You know, because the head has been separated from the body. Um, <clears throat> and um, he came up with a definition, which is that um, that. Uh, uh, well, he defined life through death, which is interesting. He said life is the sum of functions by which death is resisted. So once so death becomes this 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 thing that will just take over once life, whatever that is, gives way. Um, the problem is that, I mean, just for humans, leaving aside the animal world, for humans, it's it's really hard to to determine that because um, we keep getting better at preserving life. Um, it used to be thought, like Bichat, for example, would believe that that the heart and the brain and the lungs were sort of you know inextricably linked together, so that if any one of them failed, then the whole thing failed and you're dead, um, which was okay uh, until uh, people invented the iron lung and ventilators. And then it was possible to keep the lungs and heart functioning, even if the brain could no longer have conduct that job. Um, and that forced doctors uh, eventually to say, you know, this is not, this is not really life. Uh, this is, this is, uh, this is, this is kind of a death. And so that led in the 1960s to the definition of, of brain death. Um, you know, in other words, we def we legally define death as the death of the brain, because for a human being, it's that life in the brain which which matters. You know, we're not bacteria. You know, our body. You know, there's still homeostasis going on, metabolism going on in the body of someone who's on a ventilator. Um, but um, if there's no hope of that brain recovering any function, then we consider that's what we consider that death. Although that itself is can be controversial, and people do contest that still. Yeah, I think I, 
I, I, I like quite like that definition that it's um, the sort of sum of the forces that resist death is what life is all about. I think actually that really does apply to the aging process because there are just so many of these things that I, I actually think it's quite remarkable. That weren't a thousand figure that I, I quoted for my risk of death this year. Um, it's really incredible that our bodies do maintain this homeostasis to such a sort of elegant, beautiful, precise degree that our chance of sort of falling off to one side or the other is remarkably low. And, um, you know, if, if you were to look at the safest humans of our current age, in fact, the safest humans in the history of humanity are current 10 year olds. So if you're a 10 year old in the risk rich world, you have a less than one in 10,000 chance of not making your 11th birthday because of that sum of processes that are trying to resist death. And I think um, I think Carl's absolutely right. One of the things that really I found remarkable reading about the history of medicine um, for my book was just how recently a lot of these things have happened. So, for example, it was thought that after your heart had stopped, you were dead for a very long period of time. But then as, as recently as the 1960s, CPR was developed and rolled out. And you sort of imagine, you know, what, what happens if somebody's heart stops? It's the most obvious thing in the world to try and give it a pump and start it again, isn't it? And it's sort of a staple of TV drama and films. You see this thing happen you know, every night on our TV screens. And yet this really you know, remarkably obvious with hindsight process wasn't even conceived of until the 1960s and started to be rolled out. And as a result, you know, people are just living longer and longer and longer because we've completely changed our understanding of how it is that we can preserve life in older ages. And I think what's really exciting about the idea of researching aging is just that we can intervene so long before these death processes happen. Because I was thinking a bit about this uh, for this panel earlier. You know, what, what is it that causes us to actually be dead? Well, let's, let's say it's brain death. That is in a way a little bit controversial because it might be that your memories, your personality, all of those things that make you you are still in there and perhaps in the, the structure of your brain, for example. So it could be that once we get a more fundamental understanding, if we could come up with rather than an iron lung, an iron brainstem that could maintain that activity, maybe we could keep people alive even longer. But putting that question to one side and the fact we have been pushing that back further and further, what we'd like to do is get in there. You know, we don't want to be giving people CPR because CPR, in spite of what you might have seen in films, the huge majority of patients who are at that stage you know end up dying unfortunately what we want to do is we want to prevent the processes that cause um these hearts to stop to prevent the processes that cause brains you know to die of themselves things like dementia and i think that's what really excites me is we do have to understand these processes that, uh, that they're sort of multiple steps removed from the actual process of death but understanding the actual process of death and sort of peeling back the layers one of the things i think is most important is understanding why we die and doing autopsies particularly on older people who are often you know if a 90 something dies in hospital it's just considered so unremarkable but actually, as you sort of begin to understand this, you realize that our, our understanding of the causes of death, particularly in the oldest old, are really in their infancy. And if we want to you know, do the best medical work we can to try and preserve a healthy life, then we've really got to understand what death is and you know, what causes it. Well, this actually leads into um, sort of my next question is if we need to understand life, then we need to understand death. And do we need to understand the beginning of all of that as well? for whoever wants to answer. <laughs> I, I think, yeah, and actually, I think this is this is one of the most fascinating things is that we think of the aging process as this inevitable thing. And yet, all of us have experienced in our day-to-day -day lives the process by which the human body knows exactly, you know, there, there are tools within the human body to reverse aging. And the reason we know that is that you can get an old father, you know, men can conceive even in their 60s, women can conceive in, you know, perhaps in their 40s, um, even in their 50s in the sort of record-breaking cases. And yet the baby that those two people have will be born young. And like that, that's a really obvious thing to say, it almost sounds stupid. And yet, it's clearly the case that whatever damage accumulates the DNA of the egg cell, whatever changes happen inside that cell, the body is capable of reversing them to a very, very large extent. You know, it's not the case that the parents, sorry, that the children of older parents tend to die before or tend to get age-related diseases sooner. They tend to live, you know, pretty much normal lifespan. They're almost indistinguishable from, you know, people who gave birth at the age of 16. So what is it that's going on inside our biology? I think that's really, really fundamental. And actually this is this sort of realization has led to some fascinating and exciting movement in the uh, biology of aging in the field are actually treating it in the last few years because uh, one of the big news stories in aging sort of at the end of last year was that Jeff Bezos amongst others some you know a variety of billionaires of whom he he was the most famous name have invested three billion dollars in a startup called Altos Labs and the science that Altos Labs are getting behind is this idea of something called epigenetic reprogramming and this is the idea that um, it's actually, it was actually originally developed to study this process that happens at the start of life there was a scientist called Shinya Yamanaka Japanese chap who got the Nobel Prize a few years later for this discovery he was trying to work out what it is that allows the clock to be turned back in those cells. And um, we could now use these things called the Yamanaka factors. These are four genes that are named after the, the guy who discovered them. And we could take a, a skin cell out of my arm, out of your arm. We could either get it out of a, a super centenarian. So when he was 115 years old, we could take a skin cell out of 
of their arm, we can apply these four genes and we can reprogram those cells back to a point where they're what's called pluripotent. They're able to become any cell in the body exactly as a cell that's just been fertilized, you know, when a sperm meets the egg, for example, you know, just at the very, very beginning of life. And what we found is that we can turn back the clock that whole way, but we probably wouldn't want that as an anti-aging treatment because I don't want to turn into a massive glob of sort of primordial stem cells. I want my liver cells to stay liver cells doing, you know, all the exciting things that liver cells do. I want my brain cells to stay as brain cells and so on. But what we've discovered is that by applying these factors, rather than applying them to the extent where we turn the clock all the way back, we can actually apply them transiently we can do it briefly and one of the experiments in mice looked at doing this two days in every seven rather than doing it for the sort of full duration of the week so you can imagine turning on these yamanaka factors at weekends as it were and what they found was that was enough to reverse the age of these mice uh, somewhat and it seemed to make them live a little bit longer and healthier but without causing this sort of widespread change to pluripotency inside their bodies and so i think yeah understanding the beginning of life has actually given us this incredible technology potentially to uh, make some changes to what happens to all of us at the end of it yeah and i mean what's What's fascinating is that, um, you know, even in the 1960s, as some of the early insights into the process that Andrew's talking about were, were really uh, emerging, um, scientists were, were recognizing that certainly in the United States, um, th their work was going to be smacking right into some serious political conflicts. Um, I, in Life's Edge, I write about um, a scientist named Joshua Lederberg, who had won the Nobel Prize for his work on bacteria. <clears throat> and he had a warning for uh, Americans in general that they could not uh, look to science for some simple uh, answer about when life begins. Um, he actually uh, uh, said, in fact, what he wrote was, life, in fact, never begins. And what he meant by that was that, um, you know, if you are tracing um, any person's um, history, you know, in terms of their cells, you can go back and back and back. If you reverse time, you know, you're, you're looking at, at, at a person when they're a fetus, when they're an embryo, when they're just a little clump of cells, when they're one cell. And before that, they're two cells. In other words, they're two cells. There's a an unbroken continuity, a, a biochemical continuity from that egg and that sperm in the parents' bodies. You can trace all the components inside of it, all the proteins and, and the genes, all, all those elements that are there combined and then continue to interact. Um, and so, you know, for scientists, you know, when, they, when they're thinking about life, um, they don't think about it with some sort of legal definition of quote unquote when life begins. Um, and you know, the Supreme Court, when it made its decision about Roe v. Wade, literally just they said, we don't have to get into when life begins. Um, but you know, we are looking very much at that now politically because um, you know, there is going to be an argument about, well, when does life begin? Um, you know, there are these personhood movements and so on that are, are claiming that life begins at conception. Uh, and in Life's Edge, I talk about all the problems that science poses to that kind of uh, you know, very simple view of, of what we mean by life and beginning. Yeah, definitely definitely very relevant um, topic to be considering right now, for sure. Um, another relevant topic that I'm really excited to talk with y'all about, um, because I work with modified viruses and us being two years into this pandemic, um, what are your thoughts on viruses being alive? This is something that I know in my field is like, every single scientist has a different opinion, um, but do you all have any thoughts that you would like to share? Um, you know, I, I, I have the strange experience of, of getting emails from virologists, um, telling me, uh, what to think about viruses and literally on one day in literally the same day in the morning, I got an email from one virologist who said, I just read what you were writing about whether viruses are alive or not. I mean, of course they're not alive and any virologist will tell you. Uh, and then that afternoon, another virologist uh, emailed me to say, of course, viruses are alive. I mean, it, you can't understand them if you don't think about them as being alive. It's meaningless. And any expert will tell you. So 
I think that just gives you a sense that, like, uh, I as a journalist, I'm not going to be stepping in where these virologists clearly <laughs> do not agree. Um, but that's what's so cool uh, in a sinister way about viruses, which is yeah. that they um, they are, you know, you can think of them as half alive. I mean, in the sense that um, I mentioned earlier the NASA definition of life, you know, as a, a chemically uh, self-sustaining system uh, that is capable of Darwinian evolution. Um, so viruses uh, are not self-sustaining in that sense of having like metabolism and homeostasis. Like they don't have it. They are, it's, it's a package of genes. Uh, but evolution, you bet. I mean, these variants that we're dealing with now that are, are uh, just continuing to draw out this pandemic, that's evolution in action. And so, so here you have something that definitely is not alive in some respects and definitely is alive in other respects. Um, and uh, so, you know, it, it makes them um, incredibly interesting, um, you know, partly because maybe that gives us a clue about, you know, maybe how life began, that may, that there might be these sort of intermediate forms that um, that sort of provide a sort of a jumping off point for, for life. But, you know, viruses don't grow and, and, and you know, and viruses don't grow old. Um, they, they, just, they just are. And uh, either they infect a new cell or they don't. Yeah, I think it's a fascinating question. I think the the thing that oh the thing that I would say is um Oh, we lost Andrew again. Oh uh, I was very curious to hear what he was gonna say. Bummer, I know, me too. Well Yeah, I'm sorry he's having this camera trouble. Get, but anyway. Get him back there. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's definitely um an interesting thing to think about um in terms of when we think about it moving through a population like we do, or like in my research, we're using a modified virus that um, does not replicate once it enters a cell. So it's basically um, kind of like a useless virus. We actually use it for the delivery of um, therapeutics. But in that sense too, it's like, well, if it's not replicating and, you know, again, it's, yeah, it's a um, definitely a very complicated topic that we're on today huh <laughs> I, i'm one of the most um what i find one of the one of the most thought-provoking ways of thinking about whether viruses are alive or not is to to say sometimes they are and sometimes they aren't yeah. <laughs> uh, and this is a this is actually a, a theory or a model that's been put forward by some scientists um uh one in particular in france he's named patrick forter and and so so forter you know, says, well, you know, when a virus is just out there floating outside of a cell, uh, what sometimes is called a virion, um, it's not alive, he'll say. Um, when, when it infects a cell, though, that cell becomes something new. So he argues that, you know, and we have, sometimes we just think of a cell as just, um, with a virus in it is just sort of like, you know, kind of a, a beleaguered cell, a cell with a, you know, feeling a little under the weather or, you know, just, but the fact is that, that, you know, in so many different ways, a, a cell that's in, got a virus inside of it is no longer its former self. Uh, it is, uh, it, it is now a virus factory. Um, and so far, Terra calls it a viro cell. Um, because like when you get SARS, if you get SARS, I hope you don't get SARS, but you know, when a person gets SARS, um, and the virus goes into a cell, it does this, one of the many amazing things that it does is it, it goes to these factories where our cells make our own proteins from our own genes and plugs them up. It just, it locks the door so that we can't get the RNA into those factories to make new proteins for ourselves. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. But I'm gonna. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Hello, sorry. I'm back. Good. I was just gonna jump in where I left off, but please finish your thought. Oh yeah, I was. Just, I was just gonna say that um, the the amazing thing with viruses when they infect cells is that they can. So they they close they lock the door to those factories, but they have the key. So in other words, the cell is only making viral proteins. 
which then assemble into new viruses. And it's, so it's this, this astonishing, sophisticated switchover to what, what some scientists argue is, is, a, is a new and distinct form of life mm -hmm. that's not like the cell before it. So yeah. viruses go back and forth between being alive and not alive. Definitely. And, and it's hard to think that something that hijacks a cell that way would not be alive. <laughs> Too. I think that's a really lovely way of thinking about it. And what I was going to say is that I think a lot of this debate, um, without coming down on hard on one side or the other for all, all the reasons Carl's already outlined, um, I think that we imagine viruses, you know, that they're, they're, they're parasites, they can't exist without being inside a cell, essentially, or at least occasionally being inside a cell in order to replicate themselves. But actually, if you think about it, basically that's true of all of life. Like you might say, am I alive? Are you alive? Well, I do depend on quite a lot of things. I need to eat food, which is essentially, you know, plants, it's animals, it's other life. Um, I need to breathe the oxygen that's produced by the plants on planet Earth. So we're all part of this much larger symbiotic system. And actually, one thing that you, um, a, a sort of, a bit of a problem back back when the human genome was first sequenced, you know, we, this was back in the early 2000s, we just ha suddenly had this access to this three billion letter long genetic code that's inside every one of our cells. I think some people in computational biology were quite overawed by this incredible new sort of data, this power that we had to look inside the human body and decode it on a level that we hadn't previously achieved. But actually, this led to a sort of reductionism and looking at DNA as being this sort of fundamental part of life, when actually... Um, you can sort of think of DNA as being like a floppy disk in the sense that if you don't put the floppy disk or and let's try and update this analogy, let, make, make it into an SD card, <laughs> try and bring that up uh, uh, in case anyone in the audience has absolutely no idea what I'm talking about with the floppy disk. You can't read an SD card without having the SD card reader on your computer, without having you know the, the, the software on your computer to decode the data on that SD card. And it's exactly the same with DNA. If I got some of the DNA out of one of my cells and just dolloped it on the side, it would be no more alive than a virus. It would be no more alive than anything else. That DNA needs the machinery of the cell to be able to read that information reproduce it which sounds you know remarkably like a virus actually when you put it like that so i think that um i mean this and this is a problem we keep running into whether it's death whether it's life um the reason these things are very hard to define is actually we're all part of this you know without getting too hippie in you know, a massive symbiotic you know you know where, where are the boundaries of this organism can we call the whole earth an organism you know in the same way as an anthill might be a more sensible organism than the individual ants themselves drawing these lines is just absolutely nightmarish and so I think I'm erring towards viruses being alive, but I, I won't come down on either side. <laughs> <laughs> Again, those chats with the virologists might change your mind one way or the other. <laughs> in the middle, like Carl. <laughs> we'll be back with more after this message. Dreaming of a long-awaited vacation? Take your travels to the next level with Alaska Airlines. They're committed to providing a higher standard of safety and cleanliness throughout your journey. From mask requirements and touch-free options to HEPA filters on board and fresh air every two to three minutes. Plus, their award-winning loyalty program, Mileage Plan, makes it easy to earn and redeem miles wherever you go, including destinations worldwide, thanks to their One World Alliance membership. If you're ready to land a low fare, next-level care, and the best experience in the air, book now at alaskaair.com. Um, all right. I actually, we have a lot of audience questions and um, I think that it would be kind of fun to get into some right now. So um, the first question I have from Richard Sanford, if we prolong lifespan, what are some of the ethical issues such as older workers not retiring who get access to life prolonging supplements and interventions, et cetera? And Andrew, I know that you are well versed in this because I understand that you get this question a lot. I do, yeah. I think actually it's remarkable. At the end of a talk, um, I'll far more often get these kinds of ethical questions. And you know, even before, how do I extend my own life? How do I live as long and healthy as possible? The number one question I get, actually, it's interesting to have um, older workers being thought about. The question I get most often is, what are we going to do with all the people? What about the population of the planet if we if we start prolonging lifespans? And I'm not going to have uh, time, unfortunately, to cover every single ethical quandary in the next um, sort of two minutes. What I would say is, if anyone's interested, there's a free chapter of my book you can go and read about this at ageless.link/ethics, which goes into uh, far far more detail than I have time to here, to specifically address the old the workers thing i actually think this is a problem that we already have because um and you know if you look back at what, what's happened to lifespan over the last 200 years we've been increasing in the best performing country in the world the um 
life expectancy by an average of three months per year, every single year. It's, and the straightness of this line, it's almost suspicious as a statistician looking at this. You think, you know, how, how is it this sort of tangle of sociological, of medical factors has, has conspired in some way to have this sort of tick-tock three months every single year increase in life expectancy? And what that means is that kids born in the rich world today are lucky enough to have a life expectancy we think is probably going to be up at, up at around 100. And that means they're going to be living you know, 20 years longer than their parents, perhaps. We'll have, we'll have to just wait and see exactly how that pans out. But careers are already um, you know, substantially longer than they were you know, even a few decades ago. The retirement age of 65, which is you know, really commonly cited as where people become old, you know, quote unquote, if we can, again, defining old is hard, just as hard as defining life and death is. But um, that retirement age was first defined in the UK in the 1920s. And that was at a time when only a handful of people made it to age 65. And if you did, you were probably very frail and very sick. And so we introduced the old age pension basically to, you know, as a sort of apology to them to allow them to bow out of the workforce and uh, you know, live out their last few years with a, little, a bit of money in peace. And yet that pension age wasn't changed until 2019 and life expectancy had increased by 23 years over that period. So there's just this absolutely incredible blindness by policymakers. This is a problem that we're going to have to deal with anyway. And one of the sort of common questions you get about um, aging workers is, is to look at the field of science. There's this famous quote by Max Planck that science advances funeral by funeral. And isn't it the case that, you know, if we're going to enable professors who honestly, you know, often stay, stay you know, they keep working until they're 80, some of these emeritus professors, they've got incredible stamina. Aren't we slowing down scientific progress by doing this? And, this, you know, you could make a very similar argument in political arguments and all other kinds of workplaces. Some clever studies that have been done in this find the effect is quite ambiguous. But if the effect is present, it's actually detectable at current scientific career lengths. So people have looked at premature deaths of sort of superstar scientists with loads and loads of publications that you know die in a car crash or something. And what you find is that that has a hugely detrimental effect on obviously that particular scientist is dead, so they can't publish anymore, and their direct collaborators who are working on that particular theory. But it actually encourages growth in other parts of the field. And so if that is indeed a problem in science, and obviously, you know, whether or not continued research on one particular line or a broader investigation encouraged by the dropout of that superstar is the preferable model is going to vary from field to field. But since that is observable within current careers, maybe current scientific careers are already too long and we need to enforce term li limits for professorships, just like we do for presidencies. And I think that's the sort of thinking we need to apply to all kinds of different careers, because, you know, if people are able to work and work and work and accrue more and more wealth and so on and so on. These are problems that I think we need to solve from a political and societal point of view, because the most common answer I give um, to all of these questions, whatever they are, is to reverse the question. And imagine we lived in a society where there was no aging, where people just lived an incredibly long time in, you know, in health and vitality with much, much lower levels of disease than currently. Would we invent aging to solve the problem of intergenerational inequality? I really don't think we would. It's absolutely barbaric. You know, this, this huge, huge cause of human suffering. We'd come up with some political way to solve that problem. And I really think that that's the approach we should be taking now rather than saying, you know, should we um and ah about whether to deploy life-saving medicine in order to try and solve that problem for us? Thank you. Carl, do you have any thoughts to contribute? Oh, it's, uh, it's so fascinating to think about, partly just because, as Andrew's book demonstrates, that um, th this is not... Science, total science fiction that there's there's a there's more and more real biology to look at and to understand and to base our, our ideas on. Um, I mean, one question that I have in the back of my mind is actually about minds in the sense that like there could be you know in terms of aging um, you know there could be some you know um, treatments to to slow down aging that that you know work throughout the body and you know in the sense of um you know resetting you know some of the uh the molecules in our cells um that, that andrew had touched on and talks about more in his book but um you know through time our brains change and not just in the sense of you know at that biochemical level but um the network changes so the way that the brain functions is different at 20 30 40 50 60 and so on um and so, you know, if people are living to be, you know, 150 or 200 years old, um, how are those brains working? Um, are those the brains that are functioning as, you know, that young, vibrant scientist full of new ideas or, you know, maybe somebody who just is, you know, kind of that it sort of has that certain uh, grandparent type wisdom slash stubbornness uh, or something else. What What is that mind of that extremely old person going to be like? Especially it's a great question. Solve the yeah. problem of aging. 
Yeah, I, I'm actually quite optimistic about this. And the reason is that if you look at a lot of the studies that have been done where we have demonstrated that mice, uh, uh, all, all the sort of leading work in this is being done in mice at the moment, you find that not only do you rejuvenate the sort of uh, the, the sort of bodily health side of things, you know, they get lower risk of cancer, lower risk of heart disease and that kind of stuff. They actually seem to have a lower cognitive age as well. And I think the most, um, obviously it's quite hard, you know, you can't give a, a, a mouse a maths test or something. So what they tend to do is do things like put them in a maze and a young mouse will have a huge amount of curiosity about its new environment. It'll want to look around see if there's any food older mice tend to be more anxious maybe they're just a bit more lazy uh, psychologically and so they are much less exploratory but by a variety of different anti-aging treatments we seem to be able to reverse that aging in the brain as well and obviously we can't really do a proper like i sort of alluded to cognitive experiment on mice uh, in terms of how they think or something like that but my hope is that we'll have the wisdom that we've accumulated throughout those extended lifespans with the youthful mental agility and you know i guess we'll just have to wait and see yeah definitely um, I'm going to move on to another audience question from Melissa Westbrook. Um, for people in countries with lower life expectancies, does that mean they will perceive big life differently? That's a really good question. I think that actually one of the things that's quite remarkable about this, this is actually when, when, when I do an in-person event, I normally do this as an audience quiz. So I'm going to try and get everyone to imagine this at home. What do you think is the average life expectancy around the world right now? Um, so this is not just in the rich countries, but in all, you know, all of, all of the countries in, you know, sub-Saharan Africa and Asia and that sort of stuff. If you were to average every country in the world, what do you think that number is? So just give everyone a second to think about that. The answer in 2019, which is the most recent data we have, and you know, a, a bunch of strange stuff has happened in the last couple of years for obvious reasons, but it was 72.6 years. That's the average life expectancy around the world. And so that means with that continuously increasing, it's actually increasing faster in the poorer countries, that most people in most countries are living these fantastically long lives by historical standards. You know, if you look back at most of human history, life expectancy was maybe 30 or 40 years old. We've almost doubled that for every country in the world now, which is just a fantastic achievement. So I think that there definitely will be some difference in perception. But I think what's really remarkable, I think perhaps a problem that we've got with our perception in the rich countries is that we look around the world and we imagine there's this enormous, poor, developing world where people have much, much lower life expectancies. But mercifully, particularly over the last 50 years, that has in large part ceased to exist. I think about 10% of people live in countries now with a life expectancy below 65. And we've obviously got a huge moral responsibility to do something about that. But that means that 90% of people in, you know, basically every most countries in the world are living such, such long lives that actually that question is less relevant than it might seem at first. Awesome. Such a cool response. It's definitely really interesting to think about. Um, so, Carl, this one's for you from Sue. What do you think about artificial intelligence? Is that life? Yeah, I, um, I... Actually, uh, in, in Life's Edge, I um, made a very conscious decision not to write about artificial intelligence and not to write about artificial, uh, quote unquote, life, um, just partly because, you know, obviously the subject of life is huge and I wanted to write a book that would not also substitute, uh, also serve as a doorstop. Um, and I felt like I had an excuse because I was talking one day with a um biologist uh, named Kate Adamala. And Kate is actually trying to create life from scratch. She is uh, working with RNA molecules and basically wants to make kind of a protocell that can grow and divide and evolve and do all the kinds of things we think of that life can do. She hasn't gotten there yet, but she's done all sorts of cool research. And so, you know, here's this, um, uh, you know, scientist on this remarkable quest who thinks a lot about life because she's trying to make it. And I said, so what do you think? Um, I'm wondering whether I should write about artificial life. And she's like, no, it's not life. And I was like, what? <laughs> and it's not? And she said, no, no, it's not. And I was like, why not? And I was like, well, she said, it was, it was so memorable. She said, well, I have something I call the goo rule. So that's G-O-O-R-U-L-E. I was like, what is the goo rule? And then she said, if it doesn't have goo in it, it's not life. <laughs> in other words, it's not interesting to her to think about a computer program that kind of behaves in some ways that seem lifelike. The really hard problem in science is figuring out how is it that real molecules uh, come together and produce something that we uh, call life, even though we're not quite sure what life is. Like that's the problem, that's the hard problem that, um, that it does not have an answer yet and that People like Kate Adamala are trying to uh, to answer that 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 big question, and so, 
lets me off the hook. Although I'm no, I know that it, it, I've talked, then I've talked to computer scientists who are like, what, wait, what you can't, no, no, you have to. <laughs> and, and they get very angry and, and I, I sympathize. Um, and I think, you know, they feel like, well, you know, whatever it is that we're building, you know, they like to call them digital organisms. Um, they do something that's really interesting, and it's interesting in the same way that uh, conventional life is interesting. So you can, there are these amazing uh, pieces of software that um, where they, basically there are these little batches of code that copy themselves and mutate and evolve and uh, develop, uh, uh, acquire amazing new capabilities. Um, you can actually get them to evolve um, the ability to do certain kind of logical operations, uh, uh, kind of like, you know, the fundamentals of math. And you look at the program, and you're like, how are they doing that? I, 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 you know, I don't know what they're doing, but they're doing it. Um, and you can have sexual dig digital organisms and asexual ones. And it's a, it's a great fun. Um, but, you know, the question there was about artificial intelligence, which is interesting. These bits of code, I don't think anybody say like, oh, that's really intelligent. Um, what we are captivated by are, you know, these programs that are being put out by places like Google that can play chess and do all sorts of things that we do with our highly evolved, you know, front of the brains. Um, because for us, the life that matters, like I was saying before, is that life of the brain. And so we kind of want to make artificial intelligence stand in for life. Um, and it's, it's not. Artificial intelligence is, um, it's, it's this, in some ways, it's a it's a mimicry of certain kinds of architectures in our brain, and that's it. Um, now, um, could some form of artificial intelligence develop consciousness? Um, I don't know. I'm 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 skeptical. Uh, but then again, we don't have a good definition of consciousness, and so you know, certainly, like the fact that. The, all of us are conscious to us that's like the most obvious sign that we're alive like well i'm i'm here it's me you know and so if a computer becomes conscious and we've decided that that's the hallmark for ourselves then we would have to say that that thing is alive but um but that's just all based on what are the assumptions we're, we're going into it and you know i think they're kind of questionable yeah andrew do you have anything to contribute I think it's fascinating. I think that we're going to, perhaps if Carl does a second edition of Life's Edge in five or 10 years, he might revisit this because we're, we're really at this fascinating time in artificial intelligence where I think, um, so, so to sort of take the, the side that these things aren't alive, they certainly aren't alive at the moment in any meaningful sense, because we have, I think the world's largest computer, I'm right in saying, the world's largest, and this is a supercomputing, this is rooms and rooms and rooms full of computing hardware, has about the same processing power as the human brain. That isn't to say it can do the things the brain can do at all, but it can crunch numbers. Um, you know, it can do operations is what computer scientists call this at about the same speed as the brain. So we're finally at this hardware point where we can think about doing interesting, you know, brain-like things perhaps. The real the, the challenge is the software, and it's trying to work out you know how it is that life um, you know takes that amount of processing power, but turns it to so much more diverse range of applications. Where, you know we might not be able to crunch numbers as fast as a computer. But we can just do so many different tasks, and so you know that's that, that's the real fascinating question. And I think that you know looking at the progress that we've had even in the last 12 months is there have been these fascinating massive what are called language models which are artificially intelligent and they basically ingest the entire text of the internet and every book that was ever written and you can ask them surprisingly complicated questions and they give you such coherent answers you'd never realize they weren't written by a human you can get them to explain jokes even and they'll explain sort of the the inner mechanics of why is this particular statement is funny and it's getting really quite eerie now and so i'm wondering you know there's there's a there's a theory that we can basically just throw computing power at these things. And if we give them enough computing power, if we make these models large enough, they'll start to accumulate some of the properties that we would describe as intelligence. Um, and con consciousness, again, that's the, every word we've used in this, this whole hour has been something that we find impossible to define. But th they're really starting to accumulate some of the characteristics of what it might mean to be alive. And so I think that, yeah, potentially within the next five or 10 years, we're going to have to think about that. And certainly in the next 50 years, goodness knows what's going to happen. 
I mean, it's it's interesting, Andrew, that um, a lot of the times when people are are um, advocating for all of the kind of um, you know life extension, um, some of the things that you touch on in, in your book, it, it's it's so that we can live long enough that uh, that computers and artificial intelligence will be such that we can you know find a kind of immortality by being uploaded into a machine. Uh, and, um, so, you know, uh, and, and again, like, because somehow our consciousness being transferred into a machine, then that makes us continue to be alive and, and to be alive as long as, you know, somebody is, keeps that computer plugged in. Yeah. I, and I feel like it's, I feel it's very strange that sometimes these things are sort of discussed in the same breath. I can imagine people today through um, anti-aging therapy, being able to live a little bit longer and a little bit longer still, and that gives scientists longer to develop the next anti-aging therapy and so on. But the the challenge of this idea of mind uploading, it's so, you know, the, the biology of it's just incredible. You realize that it's going to require petabytes of storage. And, you know, that's, that's like a, a couple of orders of magnitude, you know, several thousand, thousand times bigger than current computer hard drives. And it's going to require so, so much processing power. I just think, and, um, you know, you, a lot of aging biologists absolutely hate the word immortality. I'm among their ranks. But I think we're going to achieve something that looks like biological immortality so long before we're going to start uploading brains. But I do think that artificial intelligence is going to have a huge role to play in terms of helping us build models of the human body that will allow us to really, you know, fundamentally understand not just the aging process, but whole different swathes of disease and come up with, you know, really exciting, innovative treatments that are just beyond this uh, tiny little lump of matter in our, in our heads. Um, thank you so much, y'all. I hate to break this conversation because it has been so fun chatting with you, but we're going to have to stop there. So thank you for taking the time to join the Crosscut Festival this year um, and for having a really fascinating conversation with me. Um, lots to think about coming out of this talk for sure. And I really appreciate the work that you all are doing in exploring these topics. Thank you so much. Thank you. And that's it for today's episode. Thanks again to Hallie, Andrew, and Carl for the talk. And thanks also to the folks in the audience who asked questions. If you'd like to be one of those audience members for a future CrossCut event, go to crosscut.com events. This episode of CrossCut Talks was produced by Sarah Bernard and Brooklyn Jamerson Flowers and engineered by Rusty Bacall and Victoria Ralph. And the event was produced by Jake Newman and Andrea O'Meara. And Chris Novich managed our audience engagement. You can subscribe to Crosscut Talks wherever you listen. And if you like the show, please review us. It helps other people find us. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit crosscut.com. And if you would like to support the work that we do at Crosscut, whether it's the live events we host every month or the in-depth reporting we deliver every day, go to crosscut.com membership. In addition to supporting our journalism, members receive complete access to the on-demand programming of Seattle's PBS station, KCTS9. Crosscut Talks is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Mark Bumgarten. We'll be back soon with another conversation.